Well, what a blessing, what a blessing. You guys have been uh, as much or more of a blessing to us and our family during this time as well. Uh, we will miss you greatly. You can be aware of that. Uh, at the same time, we're, we're just really excited what God's doing. I mean, that's, that's the goal, right? The work of the Lord. And that's what we're really about here. That's not, it's not about, you know, people or, or any of that kind of stuff. It's about the fact that we live in a, a lost and dying world that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, needs to be impacted by truth, right? And what a wonderful, faithful uh, body this is here. And it's with joy that we've served and, and joy that we've come down here and spent time uh, bringing the word and getting to know some of you. And, and uh, you, have, you have given us greatly. And, that's, that's the goal, you know, we just want to see God's word go forward. We want to see uh, a lot of good lighthouses out bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to, uh, to this world that desperately needs to hear it. And uh, that's why we came here, and that's why we, we served as we did. And it's why we preached what we preached when we were here, uh, starting with faith in a crisis, you know, faith that stands the, the test of fire with Daniel way back in April, and uh, then moving on to... Colossians and just getting the centrality of who Christ is and the power of our all-sufficient Savior and Master and how that should impact each one of our lives and, and just talking about being men of God and having faith in Christ you sees. And then today, this is kind of going to be a little different one for you. It's a, it's a message I want to bring basically because I think it'll be helpful, uh, helpful to your ministry. Um, and it's just something that I think... Uh, uh, will give each one of you great joy, and, and, it's, and it seems fitting here as you welcome in um, Pastor John and Victoria and their family here to, uh, to this sweet community here. And it's, it's been great to be here with you, but uh, what I want to tell you more than anything is that I believe with all my heart that God's going to use you in, in fantastic ways and continue to use you, and I can't wait to see how that all plays out here in this life, and then eventually we'll get the fuller story in eternity, right? So... Uh, we praise God for that. He, he uses us. Can you imagine? I mean, God's looking around. He's saying, who am I going to use today? And it's like, uh, let's use Pastor Dave or let's use Pastor John or let's use, you know, any of us that are in here, right? We can all say the same thing. Did we bring anything to the table? Did we? Not really. I mean, our faith is a gift from God. Our repentance is a gift from God. Uh, anything that's of value that comes out of our mouths is because of what he has done in each one of our hearts. And that's exciting. I mean, you, you need to remember all the time that uh, God can speak out of the mouth of a, mouth of a donkey, right? Remember Balaam? <laughs> so there's nothing real romantic about that, I know, saying it that way. But that's the reality. Praise God that he's sufficient to work through us fallen creatures. So, uh, I want to talk to you this morning about something I think is very, very important, and it's a, a message that uh, you don't get to preach when you're the pastor, all right? So this is what I get to do, and I get to have great joy in that because it just, it, I don't want any pressure on anybody here out of this thing, but I just want you to think about this because it's a, a beautiful relationship of a pastor and a church, and I want to talk to you about seven ways that you can encourage your pastor as you step into this new time. Uh, a pastor's life's an interesting life. The, the classic pastor's dream it is a story told of a pastor's wife. She, she woke up in the middle of the night and she found her husband asleep, dead asleep, on his elbows and on his knees uh, at the foot of the bed. And his hands were cupped and, and they were in front of him and as if he were kind of like hugging a tree and he was just muttering. 
And she said, George, what on earth are you doing? And he said, shh, still asleep. He said, I'm holding a pyramid of marbles together, and if I move, it's all going to tumble down. And that, in a sense, is a classic pastor's dream, if we're not careful. It is the subconscious revelation of a pressured person. A pyramid of marbles, marbles is a great metaphor for a pastor's work, in a sense, especially if we're tempted to think of it in an earthly, from an earthly perspective. Uh, a pastor is painfully aware of a lot of things within the body and the forces that are at work among his people. He knows better than most in the church the individual sins of some, uh, the hidden family problems, the conflicts between members, uh, dissatisfactions in the body, uh, lifestyle inconsistencies, and he knows better than others what everybody's position is and what differing perspectives there are on how a church should be. And all of that can add up to, to, to cause a pastor, if he's not careful, to feel as if one wrong move can bring the whole thing down. And I don't think that feeling is really a sign of weakness as much as it is a sign of somebody who cares. He doesn't want the church to fall apart. He doesn't want people to be distracted or, or discouraged or uh, fall to sin, things of that nature. And as you welcome Pastor John, his family here, I want to talk about this because I want you to understand a little bit about what it's like to be a pastor and what a congregation can do to help and encourage a pastor because I know from my experience with you guys, that's exactly what you want to do. I know you've been so encouraging to us and so gracious to us. So I don't, I don't preach this based on, wow, look at these people. Don't they care about, you know, it's not from that perspective at all. And I just think some background helps. You need to understand for a pastor that ministry is uniquely absorbing. It is a call, not a career choice. And you need to remember that. The call is absorbing because of the care of the flock that is infused in, in the pastor by God. It's absorbing because he regularly deals with situations of life and death. Not only uh, physical life and death, like funerals and people dying and things like that, but spiritual life and death within the flock. It's absorbing because he is constantly encountering and counseling folks on issues which directly affect things of consequence. Their, their eternal destination, their, their witness in, in the community and to those around them, their family's future and how they lead and how they shepherd and how they react within that environment. It's absorbing, I think, too, because there's absolutely no way that that work can be compressed into a 40-hour work week. It's not possible. And even if it were possible, it's really not even possible to, to let it go like that. You don't, you know, if you're maybe an accountant or something like that, you can crunch numbers from eight to nine to five, and, and then you can leave, and maybe you don't think about uh, old so-and-so's P&L, right? You can leave that at the office. But when you're a pastor, you don't have that ability, really, to just say, I don't really care about that between, you know, five at night and nine in the morning. If that pastor takes his call, his, his primary call to preach the word seriously, and he he pre prepares accordingly. That takes a lot of time as well. We haven't even talked about that yet. I remember John MacArthur saying one time when we were asked, talking to him, he said when he first started out especially, it would take him one hour of study to speak for one minute. Well, it's sad. He speaks like two-hour sermons, so that's going to be 120 hours a week, right? Prayer takes time, right? You don't just, oh Lord, rub a dub dub, thank God for the grub. This is not what we're doing, right? Real prayer takes time. Counseling. 
helping people with their issues takes an immense amount of time. Basic administration functions, uh, especially in a small church environment, can take a whole lot of time as well. There's visitation, there's emergencies that come up, there's uh, elder meetings and all other kinds of committees that feel like maybe you need to be there or they feel like you need to be there. All those things take time. And, and these time demands pose a significant threat to the welfare of the pastor. They really do. They have that potential for that. Uh, it, it could cause a, help contribute to a pastor neglecting his family. I think I've failed at that at times in my ministry. I tell you just point blank. I can remember in times where I, th I should have probably just told somebody, you know what, we'll deal with it tomorrow and, and dealt with something I need to deal with, with a child or something like that, and instead took the call and, hey, I'll be back and we'll deal with this later. That's a real temptation. Um, with all that kind of responsibility, it's also a threat for a pastor to start to take himself too important. Yeah, it's too important as well. And and take it too seriously. Um, pastors can also tend to be, because of these things going on, uh, can tend to be preoccupied, and you talk to them, and you feel like maybe they're not connecting with you because his mind's racing in a lot of different ways. Uh, I know I talked to somebody one time, and they said, I said hi to Pastor so-and-so, and he didn't even say hi to me. And I said, you know, he might have had something on his mind, right? He might have just been, who knows what he just got told. Somebody with a real struggle, just told him something right before he's walked past you, right? And you don't just leave that stuff. If the pastor's not careful, with all these responsibilities, he can become a workaholic, and you've got to be careful about that as well. But understand this, kind of setting the groundwork, understand that he's on the front lines of a battle and will be receiving much opposition from the enemy, and you need to understand that as you seek to come alongside your pastor and his family. Also understand that the pastor demands that you do a lot of things well. The pastor is called not only to be a competent leader, but an administrator and a counselor and a public speaker all at the same time. Um, and all that really in a volunteer organization. Uh, many of those are full-time jobs in and of themselves and take very unique set of skills. And in the midst of those responsibilities, he, he, he's, he's, he is charged with the responsibility to preach the word faithfully and in a way that is thoughtful, in a way that is understandable and accurate and calls people to, to understand and respond to the word of God. Listen to the words. I want you to, this is Charles Spurgeon. This is the prince of pe preachers, all right? I mean, this guy, he preached like every day. I have no idea how he did that. I mean, he'd get up and if you read his sermons and they're still in print now, this is a hundred and... Uh, 50 years from some of them, you read these things and they're like, beautiful. I mean, this is, he's just, it's amazing to me what God did through this man. But he wrote this. He said, it may be light work to you men of ge genius and learning, but to me, speaking of preaching, it is life and death work. Often I have thought that I'd rather take a whipping with a cat of nine tails than to preach again. How can I answer for it at the last great day unless I'm faithful? Who is sufficient for these things? When I have felt the dread responsibility of souls that may be lost or saved by the word they hear, it has made me wish that I had never ventured on such a bold a life work. How can I give an honorable account of my commission at last? That's Spurgeon. How much more so those of us who have much uh, smaller gifts, in a sense, or skills. 
For Spurgeon or anybody else who sees the greatness of the responsibility, preaching can become a difficulty sometimes, and you realize you never do it good enough. One of the great church fathers whose, whose sermons are still in print today said this, St. Augustine, he said, my preaching almost always displeases me. If you've ever preached, you understand that statement wholeheartedly. Few pastors feel great about their message when it's over, not least among the challenges is to speak week after week and still hopefully be fresh and interesting and certainly accurate. Uh, I remember one week I spoke 13 times in the week. It was like, uh, by the grace of God, just like one time in a week is. But there is a pressure, if we're not careful, that we take upon ourselves. John Bright, the famous English statesman and a great orator, he was known for his speaking, said this. He said, nothing that I could think of would induce me to undertake to speak to the same audience once a week for a year. Because after a while, I don't care how good you are or whatever, it starts to get a little old, you know, the rhythms and whatever else. There's the responsibility of the ways on the, the, the pastor and the preacher. And there's also the issue of receptibility that I want you to keep in mind, too. It's what I'll call, since you're moving to Fullerton, the Swindoll effect, okay? Before we move to Sun Valley, we call it the MacArthur effect. Or uh, uh, Illinois, we'd call it the McDonald effect or, you know, whatever. But it goes something like this. Millions of Christians spend hours daily listening to Christian radio and sermons where they hear a handful of really gifted speakers and teachers giving out their best stuff that has been edited and packaged and put to music. And people can tune in. And this is a blessing, right? That people can tune in and get this kind of stuff. There's, and they listen to these hours of programming as they go about their business, as they're driving on the freeways or whatever. And when they come to church on Sunday, they may find the speaker that you can afford is dull by comparison. And so the pastor often hears things, not often, but he hears these kind of things from time to time. After he spoke on this particular passage, well, that was interesting, pastor. Uh, you know, I have a tape or an MP3 from Pastor So-and-so, Dr. Joe Bob, who said, who spoke on the same thing. I think you'd find it great. Here it is. The pastor smiles and says, thank you. It's also an interesting dynamic because of the vulnerability of preaching. Preaching's difficult because of self-exposure that's involved. Um, it's not uncommon to hear people say, well, that really kind of stepped on my toes. I appreciate that in a good way, you know. But understand this, that the pastor who's preaching has prepared the sermon for hours and hours in his own toes. He's not perfect. He's not superhuman. He's still a fallen creature struggling with temptations and everything else. It's stepped on his toes many, many times in that process. And sometimes you're vulnerable in the sense of, you know what? Sometimes you just want to weep at a funeral as well. You know what I mean? You're burying a friend, especially in a small environment like a church like this. You'd just like to maybe not be the one that has to bring the message that day, although those are the best ones. All that said, now that sounds kind of negative, doesn't it? All that said, can I just tell you this, that being a pastor and being a, a public speaker on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ is an awesome and a wonderful task. And it's so life-changing and it's so personal and it's so beneficial to yourself and to many others hopefully as well. And so you as a congregation must endeavor to understand this unique position and understand the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into it and, and, and try to come alongside 
this unique situation. I don't know of a pastor, I cannot think of one, who has not heard a variation of this line in his career. What's it like to work one day a week? Or one hour a week or something like that? It's usually good-natured, it's usually playful, but it voices a common folklore that the pastor does an easy job, that that stuff just kind of comes naturally. And no doubt some pastors have made it seem like that by the work they've done. And I have been, a pastor is, the pastor is a magnet for lazy folks. There's no doubt about that. Understand also, I had a professor in seminary, he used to say, don't, don't forget to give out the flowers, don't wait to give out the flowers until the funeral. Uh, most of the comments a pastor hears are about things that people would like to see changed or improved, and that's great, right? Um, Many of the calls he gets are negative in nature, complaints about this, or negative issues that need help. That's okay. That's part of what you're trying to help. You know, people come in with problems. People don't come and say, you know what? Uh, very often, they don't come and say, you know what? This is, I've had the greatest time in the world today, Pastor. They call when they're really struggling. And that tends to be the lion's share of what you encounter is the hard stuff. And that's fine. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, he said, who's weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern. There's a hard issue that goes on as you hear this kind of stuff. And be aware of that. And don't, don't forget to come and, and also tell the victories that God is giving you in your life. I remember when I left Placerita Baptist up in the valley, uh, I knew at that time that positive work had been done. People were very good about telling me that. But I, I wondered how much, you know, was really lasting good work. You never know, you know. And the day I left, they, they kind of had to get together and they gave testimonies and all this kind of stuff, uh, which I dreaded. I, I, I'm not good at that. I don't like being, I don't want to be up here and everybody pointing and giving you a gift and things. And um, Thank you, by the way. <laughs> but it was, it was so valuable to hear that, too, and so encouraging. I think I ministered for, for a few years just on that. But as my seminary professor used to say, don't wait until the funeral to pass out the flowers. And, uh, you know, so you want to you come to the pastor, come to your elders with, with your concerns and your heartaches and the negative and the hardships and all that kind of stuff, but also come and say, you know what, here's what God's doing. Here, here's where I see God working in my life, in the life of this church or, or anything else like that. All that being said, though, I believe that the man of God should be with, able to withstand those storms and find his strength in God and weather them regardless of what your response is with dignity and integrity, okay? Being called to the pastor was an awesome thing. Uh, it's an amazing thing to have the privilege to be able just to open up the Word of God and to study the Word of God and, and, and dig deep into the Word of God so that you can help other people to understand that and to serve him full-time in ministry. And there's great joy in delving deep into the Word of God and spending your time immersed in God's truth and seeking to apply it not only to your own life, but coming alongside a flock and helping them to enjoy the fullness of Christ in their daily lives. And so this morning, really, and that's, that's introduction, okay? This is a different sermon than you're used to. I understand this. This is topical. I haven't heard one of these out of me yet, all right? And I don't, don't typically do a lot of this, but this is why I want to bring some selected scriptures together to talk about the responsibility of the body to the pastor. Uh, I want to address some scriptural things that you can do to build up and to strengthen and to encourage your pastor. He's not asked me to do this. Uh, 
In fact, if I know how he feels right now, he wishes he was not here for this. So I want to give you this morning seven ways to encourage your pastor so that, and here's the purpose, right? Here's your propositional statement. You ready for that? We're supposed to do that. We're preachers. So that you may glorify God in your actions and strengthen this fellowship and strengthen uh, John and Victoria and their family as they begin their ministry here. Like I said, we're going to bounce around through scripture a little bit. And at times it's going to be candid. It's going to be personal. Stay with me as I hope this will be helpful and I hope it'll be important uh, truths that you'll understand and grasp uh, that will help uh, with your own spiritual health as individuals and as a body as well. And I hope it'll also help Pastor John and his ministry here for years and years to come. All right, the first way that you can encourage your pastor, you got an outline on your, in your bulletin. Uh, the first way you can do that is to, to obey the word. And this is, uh, this is like the, you could almost stop there and the rest would fall into place. You, you could stop there. That's enough. One way to encourage your pastor, this is it. I'm telling you, this is it. Obey the word. James 1.22, prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. There is, that's the absolutely most basic and wonderful thing that you can do for your pastor. And it's this, have a hunger, seek to grow, be in the word, what you find there, be obedient to. And I can tell you with all sincerity, there's nothing that puts the wind in the sails of a pastor than that. I've had the joy to see people who, who, who have been impacted by the word of God. And there's nothing, folks, more exciting than that. I remember when I first went to our church in Kansas, we were having a meal and we're all on tables and stuff. I'm sitting across the, the table from this sweet lady who was at the time probably 85 years old, maybe early 80s. And, and somebody came up while I was there and said, do you have a recommendation for a study Bible? Never ask a master seminary student that. There's an answer, all right? Um, so I started, you know, this was, it was new then. It'd come out while I was in seminary, all that. So talking about it and all this and finished talking to this person who'd asked the question. And I never will forget this wonderful saint saying, study Bible, after, after they left. That's for young people to study and to get in the Word of God that much. I'm too old. My memory's not what it used to be. And I remember just thinking, oh, it's so tragic and sad. No, I don't I like hearing that, you know. By the way, the beautiful part of this is by the, by the time we left there, this girl of uh, everybody, she was 95 or so when we left. And she, she would stand up, she would memorize scripture, she'd quote scripture to people. She was at every ladies' Bible study, every kind of Wednesday nights, whatever we did, she was there. And she just wanted to study more and more because she got a taste of it and understood it's not this dry thing you're doing in order to pass a test or to get a degree or something like that, but it is the, a love letter from a living God who seeks to speak truth into your soul so that you may glorify his name and you may have everything you need pertaining to life and godliness lived out. Once you get a taste of that, folks, the world pulls. But if you can remember that taste, nothing can drag you from the Word of God. Because there's such a richness there. It really is. 
Ah, what joy it is to see kids. I mean, you got a lot of kids in this church. To hear them sit under the, the teaching of the word of God, whether it be from a, a, a Sunday school teacher, a care group, or the services, whatever, and just getting the word of God and to watch them grow and mature into young men and women who love God, who make difficult decisions in this current environment we live in and who seek to serve. And what joy it was after 13 years of ministering to see some of them going into leadership within the church. Awesome. To see people going to the word of God when there's a difficulty and saying, what does God say we ought to do about this? And whatever it is, no matter how difficult, to go, that's what we must do. It's beautiful. And from a pastoral standpoint, that's awesomeness, okay? Uh, 3 John 4 says, I, I have no greater joy than this than to hear my children walking in the truth. And from a pastor standpoint, there's nothing better than that. There's nothing more encouraging that each of you can do for your pastors, for your leaders, and to follow God 100%. It's better than any pastoral appreciation gift or any of that kind of stuff. Just promise you, that's awesome. Okay? That's number one. The path to your pastor, pastor support begins at the heart, obedience to the Word of God. Okay, number two. The second way you can encourage your pastor is submit to leadership. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. It is clear that all Christians are called to obedience and submission to church leadership. But this is a call here that demands a careful definition, okay? What it's not saying here, it's not a call that means blanket obedience, okay? The kind that made it possible for Jim Jones to murder 800 followers at Jonestown by ordering them to drink poison Kool-Aid. It's not that kind of call, right? That's not the kind of submission leadership we're talking about. Nor does it provide a, a basis uh, for authoritarian churches where all sorts of overbearing demands are made. The call was never meant to entice you to, to contradict biblical morality or individual conscience or any of that kind of stuff, but it was a call to submit to God's structure. I, it's, it's so big, guys. Authority is missing today. Authority in the home. I mean, watch TV for a night. How many times you heard that as your application point for the sermon? <laughs> Watch TV and just check out how a dad's portrayed on TV. What do you get? You usually get some kind of uh, ignoramus who's clueless, who doesn't know how to lead, and everybody has to kind of pull him along to the right spot in the end so that you can have a happy ending in 22 minutes. You get Homer Simpson, Right? And the authority in the home's broken down. The authority with folks, uh, politically, I don't care where you fall, all right? There's not a place for Christians to be rude about leaders, even, you know, not even, um, not Obama, not Reagan, whoever you loved, hated, whatever, I don't care. Bush, you know, put it out the window, all right? We respect our leaders. We pray for those in authority over us, and we care about a, a position of authority. We understand that God has placed them there, not us regardless of what our democratic system tends to try to tell us that we voted them in, okay? Doesn't mean we have to agree. Doesn't mean we don't have a right within our system to try to change things and all that kind of stuff. It's not what I'm saying, but we should do it from a position of respect and we should obey God rather than men. All these authority positions, if you'll notice, are being torn down and you will hardly find an authority position within a church anymore. But there is a God-placed plurality of elders that is very important in the way the church runs. And this verse talks about that. Again, 
you don't obey them if they're asking you or, or taking you down a path that is contradictory to the Word of God, right? You understand that, right? Acts 5.27, we, we obey God rather than men. Uh, we're to be like Acts 17. Remember the Bereans? What did they do? Paul spoke. Paul spoke. And what did they do? They went. They opened up their, their scriptures and said, is this really true? That's your call. And so you notice the first reason really here for this emphasis on obedience. He says, first thing he says is leaders are accountable to God. Look at 17b. For they keep watch over your soul. And keep watch is a, a Greek verb that is literally to keep oneself awake. It's kind of the, the, the feel of it. They, they keep watching that way. Many nights as a pastor, I'd lie awake in bed praying, uh, troubled sometimes, concerned certainly for a member in our flock. It's painful, folks, to watch folks going down paths that lead to pain and heartache and their own demise and dishonor to God. A true shepherd will have concern for the body and will keep watch in that way over their souls. And it's a type of leader that you are commanded to, by Scripture, to obey and submit to. Now, additionally, this concern is motivated in part by something very profound. Look at verse 17, verse C in Hebrews 13, and you'll see, for they keep watch over your soul, check this out, as those who will give an account. That's a staggering statement. Pastor John We'll give an account. Yui, all of your elders, they give an account for how they shepherd this flock. Right? Now, is that something that you just, well, I'm, I'm so plumb excited to give that account before God that I did this perfectly. That's a scary thing in a way for a good leader who understands his frailty. It's a solemn statement. Every pastor wants to, was I faithful in dealing with you? Did I encourage you to excel still more? Did I come to you when you, when you were sinning and, and come alongside you and show you the right way to go? Did I care for your well-being spiritually? Was I encouraging you to be what you're supposed to, what Christ has for you to be, utilizing your spiritual gifts to minister to the body? These are all things that a, a pastor is working through and trying desperately, a good pastor trying to do. And it's because of these reasons that you're to play, follow the leaders. When your pastor and leadership comes to you, having prayed, having studied, having sought God's will in a matter, and they bring a recommendation of some kind to you, you have a responsibility. And it comes down to this, and it's really simple. Two things. You, you be that Berean first. You examine scriptures to see if it's so. And what they bring you when they bring it to you, if it matches up to Scripture, guess what you do? Obey and submit. Simple as that. We talked about it with wives. We talked about how Christ submitted to the Father. This is not a negative thing or a subordinate thing. It's just the structure that God's given this church. If it, does, if it contradicts the Word of God, don't do it. How about this one? The Word of God doesn't address it. The leaders have come and they've decided we're going to... Something to do with how membership works. Well, you won't find a scripture about the, the methods of dealing with membership, say, in a church, right? So, are they contradicting? No. Uh, 
are they, do they have a thus saith the Lord verse to go with it? No. But what's happened? God has placed people in your midst to make those kind of decisions. If there's not a contradiction, then you go with it. Make sense? You say, well, I know a better way. There's a process, and I think every leader that I've ever met here has, has gone and, and they would listen to what your concerns are and they would prayerfully consider those things and work through it. But in the end, a decision has to be made. It doesn't always work out on procedural matters the way everybody wants. You understand that, right? I remember I had a guy leave a church one time because uh, we were building a new building and he thought we ought to have a chiller system and not a, an HVAC unit kind of system. Made a decision that the way we were going, and he's like, well, they didn't care about me. You had another guy over here who thought this is the only way to go. How do you please that? You don't. And you're not seeking to please men. You're seeking to please God. So they prayerfully consider what is the best way that we can lead the body down a path. And if they're not contradicting scriptures, folks, obey and submit to them. Simple as that. You got to know scripture, right? Now, if the verse in Hebrews 13 so far wasn't sufficient enough reason for obeying and submitting to godly leadership, the author there continues and gives us another reason. At the end of verse 17, he says, let them do this, that is lead, uh, with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And there you see a very stark and a very true fact. Leadership uh, can be joyous and it can be painful. And it usually has a little of both. Uh, it's not easy. I've seen times in my own ministry where there's, I would rather not lead than anything. And I have to really basically just say, you know, I'm going to do what God wants me to do, even though I'd rather not be involved in this right now. I think of Moses and all the grumbling the children of Israel did after they came out of Egypt. I mean, how hard had that been? What he had how he had hoped for them and what he wanted to see them enjoy the fruits and the promises of the Lord. And I wonder if it was all the much harder 40 years later when they're getting ready to enter the land like we talked about a few weeks ago and they did the same thing again. I bet Moses' 80-year-old bones just had to creak under that. All leaders know that pain. And, and hope most, I think all leaders know the joy too. Listen to the words of Philip Brooks, a guy from long ago. He said this, to be a true minister to men is always to accept new happiness and new distress, both. The man who gives himself to other men cannot be, ever be a wholly sad man, but no more can he be a man of unclouded gladness. To him shall come with every deeper consecration a before untasted joy, but in the same cup shall be mixed a sorrow that it was beyond his power to feel before. It's a strange dynamic of leadership in spiritual matters. Your response can and will have a direct effect on the grief or the joy that Pastor John and the other leaders feel. It really will. But the point is more than that. The author of Hebrews makes a very clear point here that appeals at a very personal level to everybody in the congregation. He says, if you cause grief to leadership, it'll be unprofitable for you. And that hits us in our, maybe our selfish spot, doesn't it? But right, that's the promise of the Lord. Uh, how, how will that happen? Well, if, if it impedes the pastor and the leaders, that's not profitable for you. If it impedes your relationship with Christ as you're disobedient in that area, that is not profitable for you, right? 
If, if you're impeded in your relationship with Christ, what effect does that have on the body as a whole? It, it harms the body as a whole as well. It would be unprofitable for you. So Hebrews 13, 17 tells us to obey and submit because God-appointed leaders are fulfilling their charge of watching over your souls and such leaders must answer to God and give an account to him for that work and your obedience would be profitable to you and to them as well as you give them joy rather than grief. Again, blind obedience is not prescribed here but respectful, submissive obedience to that which does not contradict God's word or God's character is prescribed. Be a Berean and then follow. Be a Berean, then follow. Or gently and in love, help them to see the light if you find a contradiction. Submit to leadership. So you encourage your pastor with your heart, obeying God, and with your will, obeying and submitting to God-ordained leadership. And the third way you can encourage your pastor is with your hands, and that is minister to the body. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Galatians 5.13 says, You were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity to, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The pastor, as well as the congregation, we're all, everybody in here who's been redeemed by Christ, is called to serve one another. Would you agree with that statement? What has happened, I think, is exceedingly sad and counterproductive is that churches often look at the pastor as kind of a hired gun. Well, he's the guy who's supposed to do visitation. He's this guy who's supposed to do this. And it's, we've done this for years with, now without a pastor for months. Now he's here. Let's dump all this stuff back on him. We pay him to visit us. We pay him to minister, do the ministry, to reach the community. We'll just sit back and watch or maybe heckle, Right? Now catch this truth, folks, and you will see the ministry of yourself and of this church blossom. Very simply. Ready? You as a church must commit yourself to creating an environment in which your pastor is encouraged to be a man of God and to pursue the work of the ministry unencumbered. All right? You tracking with me on this? What that means is that you realize something that's very, very valuable, very joyous for you and for, for all involved. And that is the work of the ministry is not the work of one or three or five or the 20%. The work of the ministry is the work of the redeemed. Well, this is cool, folks. I hope you get this, all right, because this is really cool. You see, there is great joy in ministry. Sometimes it's hard. We've talked about that. But there is immense joy to be used by the God creator of the universe to carry out his plan and his purpose in your generation here. Isn't that awesome? To, to come alongside and to be an encourager one to another, to serve one to another, love one another, to share and come alongside one another, to at times rebuke one another, to, to correct and to train and to help others along the path in accordance with what God's word says. I tell you what, folks, get this. A church where the 100% is ministering like that is a church that's impactful. And, and to a certain extent, regardless of what he does. Now, let me tell you why that's even more impactful, though, when it comes to Pastor John and, and other pastors and leaders is because what you're doing now 
is you're, you're carrying out the design the way God designed it and allowing him to carry out his calling the way that God designed it. Because the calling of the, of the, the church leader, the calling of the pastor, is not merely to, to be the one that visits and to be the one that's doing all this legwork stuff all the time. He's certainly going to be doing that alongside you. And he should be. We should be. But you should be ministering. You should help. You should unlock a building, teach a Sunday school class, uh, write notes of encouragements. Don't keep a scorecard on whether he's visited you this month or not and rubbed your bunions or whatever else gets you excited. He's not a surrogate, buddy. That's not why you're bringing him in here. I promise you. You could have better friends than a Purdue linebacker, surely. <laughs> I remember a guy, Elmer was his name. He was an elderly farmer guy, and he, he you know, had a lot of time on his hands. And I remember he used to come to my office regularly, usually while I was trying to study the Word of God. And he, and he would say this, and this is a quote, okay? Well, I ran all my errands, and it's too wet to go to the farm, so I came here. Well, I appreciate the fact that you want to be with me and all that kind of stuff. Don't get me wrong. But then he would just sit there. What do you think about the new whatever's going on in the town? I hope you'll visit him and I hope you'll share. And I don't want to discourage that at all because we all need that, all right? And that's part of body life. But also understand that what he is most valuable at is going to be ministry of the word and prayer. That's his, his first two. The other stuff's part of it. But those are the main things. And that's why you're, you're setting him apart for this task. You're freeing him up. So he's not going down to you know, Kmart or to Walmart and putting on the blue vest and welcoming people in so that he can pay his bills. You're freeing him up so that you, and you're saying, you go in there and you study the Word of God. And you come back out here and tell us what we're supposed to be understanding from the Word of God. Impact our souls with the Word of God. You pray for us and pray for me. We'll pray for you too, but you minister over the body in such a way that you are uh, immersed and, and soaked up in the word of God and prayer and having an impact that way. You will have an impact as a body as you minister one to another and you will have a greater impact now that you freed them up to do that so that the church is this powerful uh, arm of God that's being used to have an impact. How cool is that? Isn't that what you want? I mean, is this just a club? We're not a club, right? Getting together and saying, well, let's just meet. All in favor say aye. Oh, that was fun. I hear we're having donuts today. That was fun. No, no, this is, a, a, this is God's huddle. This is God bringing us in to encourage our souls and to send us out to wage war against the forces of darkness with the word of God. This ain't a game. His primary calling is to preach the word. That takes a great deal of time to prepare and to digest. And he needs to devote himself to prayer and the ministry of the word. Free him up to be a man of God, to prepare the feast of the word. And he'll visit and he'll be involved to serve me. I've watched him, man. He's shaking everybody. He's good at that. But let him have adequate time to do what God called him to do too. Again, you will benefit guarantee you. The pastor will be most able to effectively carry out his calling when each member of the congregation is seriously carrying out their calling to serve one another. Encourage your pastor with your heart, obeying God, 
occurring, uh, uh, encouraging with your will, obeying and submitting to leadership and with your hands by serving one another. Number four, you can encourage him with your resources. Provide for him adequately. First Timothy 5.18, I have no idea what the provision package is for Pastor John. I don't know anything about that. I am intentionally stupid. Some people would say conveniently stupid. But let me tell you this, what the Word of God teaches about that. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. The pastor should be treated with respect, which is really the main thing there of honor. And we get that, but it's also a weightiness that has to do with wages as well. Not because he's earned your respect. Well, after, after a year of watching him, he will have earned our respect and we'll do something about it. No, no, the position has earned their respect. This, of course, does not suggest that he's treated with uh, obsequious obeisance like some 19th century ministers were. I got books in my library that, that Ford's written to his worshipful lordship, the most high Reverend Dr. Smith or whatever, you know? I mean, it's not that kind of respect we're talking about. It also doesn't suggest a whatever you say, pastor, mentality. What I mean here is that because the pastor does a divine office, a minister should never have to earn his congregation's respect. He should be respected no matter what, no matter how grand or how humble his ministry is, no matter how many people, if he's a celebrity pastor or just a bivocational guy who's working hard at it, encourage him because he's God's called man. And he's worthy of, of that encouragement in that way as well. Encourage your pastor with your heart. Obeying God with your will, obeying and submitting to leadership with your hands by serving one another, with your resources by providing for him and by honoring him as well. By the way, on this issue of providing for him, um, that involves, just practically speaking, several things. A proper salary, a proper vacation, proper study time, proper days off. Um... An excellent rule of thumb for the pastor's salary should be it should be near the median in, income of the congregation. Just something like that. Uh, that enables him to live in his community with him, you know, uh, to be a part of things that they're a part of with them. Uh, the salary should be at a level where he's not forced to um, seek other outside Provision from his wife or otherwise. So she, my wife has an immense ministry in every place I've ever been. If she was not able to do that for whatever reason because we weren't provided for her, that would have been very difficult for me and for the churches. Vacation, because ministry is so absorbing, you should uh, think about vacation time. I would, I would urge you to consider upping from to traditional vacation times for the guy. I don't know what you get. I don't, again, I'm stupid here. And I love it. But, if, if, you know, usually they're away from family and different things like that. And ministry is just impossible totally to get away from. You just can't. It's not possible. Uh, so a day off often is not a day off. And the phone rings, and I'll tell you what happened in ministry most of the time for me is the meetings were always on your day off for some reason. I don't know why that is. It just happens that way. Um, so a little more time away is often good. 
uh, for refreshing the pastor. Um, study time. Consider how you can make sure you give him time uh, to study for his weekly preparing of the teaching. Um, also time for professional development and growth and time to consider and pray about the church's direction and goal. You know, one thing I used to do uh, on a, I try to do it on a monthly basis, but usually end up being a quarterly basis, was I took a day and I would go rent a cabin in the woods or something and leave my wife and everybody else. And I would go sit in this cabin I would have, and I would pray. And I would study scripture. Not what for a sermon, not anything I was preaching on. Just a time to get away and see God's face and better understand direction and think about planning and nobody else and no phone calls. The phone was off and just pray. I had to go to a cabin because I was in a small town. It would never worked, but you know, maybe that would you don't have to do that here because people don't drop in the same way. But what a great, I mean, I think it's important for the refreshing of, of the pastor and for the church to have a pastor that dedicates a day of prayer and fasting like that or sometime where he can go and, and be about that without any interruption. Again, those kind of times are for professional development, not for another extra week of vacation or something like that. It's for uh, spiritual and intellectual renewal. Encourage him to take his days off, day off as well and strive to protect it. Um, it's very common because of emergencies and special meetings for a pastor to go several weeks without a day off. Help him to get that and just encourage him to take that. Kind of be aware of when that is. And he, He's never going to tell you, to, oh, please don't bother me. I'm sure of that. But you know what? Let me tell him. I'll do it on your behalf. Let him, let him spend some time with his wife too. And his family. His little ones. With Lydia and Sophia. You're encouraging your pastor with your heart, your will, your hands, your resources. I've already hit uh, attitudes. That's respect, number five. Number six, you can encourage him with your affections. Love him and his family. The ministry is a fishbowl, and that fishbowl can take its toll. And I say especially on a pastor's family. I was a PK. I have PKs. It can be difficult. Preacher's kids, if you don't know what PK is. Um, Many of those preacher's kids have walked away from the church because of critical, overbearing, and irrational church folks who felt that they bought the rights to criticize their parents in front of them and all this kind of nonsense. How do you offset that? It's really simple. It's the golden rule, right? Love them. Right? Treat them like you'd want to be treated. Care about them. Genuinely care about them. Matthew 7, verse 12 says, However you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. That, that type of love does not demand any more from the pastor's family than it does its own. You know, pastor's kids are going to be stupid and, and goofy and rebellious maybe at times and things like that. You know, and they're going to be wonderful and top of the class sometimes too, you know. But give them a chance to be, to grow. You didn't arrive at glorification in one day, did you? They don't either. This love appreciates and gives them room for to grow. It refuses to gossip. It believes the best. It's always ready with a kind word. It's gentle. It's loving. It deals face to face, not anonymously. And it's a type of love that should be shown to all. I mean, it's not just the pastor's family we're saying we should do this for, right? Do it for everybody. The rest of the body and others. First John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Wow. You got to love the Apostle John, man. He just puts your face right in it, doesn't he? Encourage your pastor with your heart, obeying God, encourage him with your will, obeying and submitting to leadership with your hands by serving one another, with your resources by providing for him, with your attitudes by honoring him, and with your affections <coughs> by loving him and his family. <coughs> Finally, number seven. You think we'd ever get there? Probably not. Pray for him and his family, Ephesians six nineteen. right? This is so often neglected and so very important. We have a responsibility to pray for all, all our leaders, don't we? And those who have authority over us, 1 Timothy 2. It includes your pastor. It includes church leadership. And it's this, folks, I can't overest. This is not seventh because it's last. This is important. It's an important defense in the spiritual battle that rages against the ministry. Paul, right after talking about spiritual warfare, that's the context in Ephesians 6, says this. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me and the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Pray for him. Those are scriptural responsibilities. There's not anything I came up with. They're not axes I have to grind because, well, in the ministry, well, this happened. I mean, next time I get to preach this, I'm going to really hit them with that. Nothing, none of that kind of stuff's involved here. Let me just tell you what. God is, is really wise. You ever thought about that? Just his wisdom? It's one of his characteristics. You know, you know he's omnipotent, right? That means he's all powerful. He, he spoke, boom, and it was. He, he's just as wise as he is powerful. He's all wise. Now, this is beautiful, folks. Okay, get this. If God is all wise, and he is, and if God provided for you and I a, a blueprint for how we ought to live this life, which he did, right? What level of wisdom would you say that you and I are exhibiting when we follow what the all-wise one has given us to do? That would be, at our best, showing, reflecting the attribute of God of wisdom. What wisdom would we show if we say, you know, I know it says that we're to pray for our, our leaders. I know it says we're to obey and submit to our leaders. I know all these things, Pastor David, and his seven points are all in the scriptures, respect, honor, all that kind of stuff. I know that's what it says, but you know what? It's different in our church. It's different in our situation. What level of wisdom would you be and I be reflecting if we took that position? It would not be God's wisdom. Here's the deal. This sweet body and this sweet church does not exist merely for our enjoyment of one another. It exists because God has ordained the church as a structure, a structure that he is using to bring forth his message and to impact a lost and dying world, all right? If it was merely for us to be happy, can I ask you a question? Would you be happier in heaven today? I would be. Okay, I'll be honest with you. It's not that I'm not content. Sometimes I'm not, but you know what I mean? I would be much happier. I know that because I've read it in the, in, if I was in heaven right now. So if, he, if it's just about my happiness, God, when you save me, why don't you just glorify me and take me to heaven? Rapture, boom, let's go, right? 
So it must be more than that, right? Perhaps the plan is not merely about you in the sense of the world revolving about you or me. But it is about the fact that God saved us. He redeemed us. He removed us from slavery to sin and made us a slave to righteousness so that we could be his ambassadors, so that we could carry out a message of truth and hope to a world that is dying, so that we could live and show that humanity can be redeemed, can be transformed, that even when we fail, there is forgiveness, that our God is a grace, a God of grace, and our God is a God of mercy, and he is real. And, and as a church comes together in this structure that God in his infinite wisdom has put together with elders and all that kind of stuff, he has brought us together to love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, and be a mighty army to impact this planet. Just thought. Right? Think about that. Now, how cool is that, by the way, that we could be involved in that? What is it, Ezekiel, was it 33, 34? You know, the Valley of the Dry Bones, remember that one? And then, speak to the bones, right? Speak, prophesy to the bones. And then he speaks, and the bones, they're all white and brittle and sun-baked and all that kind of stuff. And the God's word spoke to those old dry bones, right? And what happens? All of a sudden, there's a clatter. <laughs> click, 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 your bones are going together. Ligaments are going around. The muscles and hair and skin and flesh, not in that order, all going around. And here's this mighty army that stands, redeemed by the word of the Lord. Yeah. This is cool. This is us, all right? This is the picture of us. I'm not talking about Ezekiel and was that meant for that and all this kind of stuff. What I'm talking about here is that we were dry, brittle, and dead in our trespasses and sins, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in him. By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. Now, therefore, right, you are as a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. That you should, he preordained that you should walk in. That's the, that's it. That's the message in a, in a nutshell, right? He saved you and redeemed you so that you could carry out his functions. And when your time is done, and my time is done, and when we serve like David, God's purpose in our generation will fall asleep too. And oh, what a glorious day that will be. And as we've done that, whether it be in a pulpit or in a pew, and there's not a better or worse in that scenario, okay? What we long to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant, right? We were faithful. We saw it, and thank you for your grace, God, when it wasn't. I long to see what God will do through you. to see it. It's going to be fun. It's going to be hard. But God will get the glory. And man, don't squander it. Please encourage this man and his family. Encourage these people, one another and their families, right? And let's carry this bad boy out until the shout and then we'll rest. Can you dig it?
I knew that you could. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your truth. Oh, it exposes us. And we, we, we hate that sometimes to be uh, our joints, our marrows divided. But God, it encourages us too. I pray that would be the, the, the that would be caught here this morning, that it would not be, uh, here's where I didn't do it right only, but here's the hope side of things, that God can take that which is broken and fix it, that God can take that which has been unfaithful and make it faithful, that God is in the business of really, that you are in the business of really just using people for your glory, for your name's sake. So whether it be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Daniel, or Joseph, or Elijah, or Elisha, or Paul, or Peter, or Augustine, or Luther, or anyone here today, Lord, may we be found faithful to your word and your calling in our lives. May we not be discouraged as we see our frailty, but be encouraged that our frailty can be strengthened by a God who never lacks strength. We pray this in your son's name, for his sake. Amen.